everything in small business and large business is a balance of, of what you have available and what issues you can address. There will always be issues. Um, I can say that on your customer facing side, um, you should probably be outsourcing to a third party authentication system. You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show, brought to you by Focivity, where we answer your questions and simplify information security for small businesses. Get the clarity you need to focus on the things that matter. Well, hello. Welcome back to the Mindful Business Security Show. Thank you for tuning in. It means a lot to me that you're listening. We have another great show for you today. E-commerce is everywhere these days, and it isn't just something for big businesses either. Many people prefer to shop online, and customers have come to expect it even from small businesses. Thankfully, there are platforms that make it easy for entrepreneurs and small business leaders to set up shop and conduct business on the internet, but there are still challenges and risks that they need to be aware of. Today, we're taking calls from listeners about security as it relates to e-commerce in smaller organizations. If you haven't already, please be sure to tap the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. We put out new episodes every month, and I would hate to have you miss one. My guest host this month brings a wealth of experience to the show. His background includes everything from the U.S. Army infantry to asset recovery, private security, and executive protection to startups and acquisitions. Judging from his physical appearance, I'm pretty sure he's a power lifter too. His career path led him through a startup that was acquired by eBay, where he became one of eBay Motors' first employees. Today, he's a serial entrepreneur and business consultant. He owns multiple companies that provide services focused on building and growing small and medium-sized businesses. Most of his clients are e-commerce retailers or e-commerce adjacent, which makes him the perfect industry expert to answer questions from our callers today. I'm excited to be joined by our amazing guest host today. Welcome to the show, Matthew Dev. Hey, thanks for having me here. Yeah, this is going to be a uh, fantastic episode. We've got some really great questions coming up too. A common theme I see in cybersecurity uh, is the varied backgrounds that our industry professionals have. You know, like mine and many others, your path is somewhat non-traditional uh, as well. How has that helped you in your career and made you better at what you're doing today? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's helped me a lot. I feel uh, my path has ended up uh, pretty diverse uh, from the very beginning, uh, even when I was a child, just playing around with computers, um, leading me up uh, through my career and touching so many different interest uh, industries and so many different roles. Um, I've always just had an interest in, in learning and doing new things uh, and figuring out how to do something, uh, taking advantage of opportunities that came in front of me. Um, and it's given me a very unique skill set uh, that allows me to perform a variety of functions. I mean, just to even give an idea of, you know, what's going on with, uh, my work life today, um, you know, I serve a role that's uh, highly technical, um, but I also cover a lot of different uh, administrative tasks and roles. Um, and so recently for clients, probably within the last year, um, instead of just working in the technology and cybersecurity side of people's businesses and the operations side, uh, I've had to work in um, with legal strategy, 
uh, a whole host of different administration issues for small businesses, um, accounting, construction, physical security, uh, building warehouses, designing processes, um, anything that that my clients essentially need, they reach out to me for. And uh, if it gets to a point to where they're not sure how to do it, then it gets escalated to me. <laughs> so you're, you're the uh, the fixer. <laughs> the I'm the final the sounds like <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, and, and my own company is like that too, which is a pretty bad habit. It's essentially anything that bubbles up ends up on my desk. And your transition into e-commerce, uh, specifically, it sounds like happened with that acquisition at the startup that you were with by eBay. Is that correct? You know, it happened a little bit before there. The whole reason I ended up at that startup is while I was doing, uh, asset recovery work and remarketing, uh, involved a lot of you know, automobiles and parts. One of my bosses um, got into a hobby of building uh, collectible cars, uh, essentially 50s model Chevrolets. To get parts at that time, it was, we were in Texas, it was drive around Texas and buy old cars out of the yards. Well, then eBay came along and these old car parts started showing up there versus the swap meets. And while when he was building cars, he was also amassing a large amount of old parts. So obtaining and selling parts became my job as well for him <laughs> uh, as part of his side business. And when I left working for that asset recovery company, um, I stumbled across a startup that said, hey, if you know how to use eBay, come and talk to us. Nice. So the, the term e-commerce, a lot of times today, uh, is used to mean online shopping by most people, but it's bigger than that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what e-commerce is and why it's so important to small businesses today? Well, uh, e-commerce is, I mean, I, I guess at any point, it's uh, a digital um, involvement in the process of, you know, sales and fulfilling of products. Uh, it originally started more with, a basis of how uh, business to business sales worked um, on the back end of wholesale uh, with EDI systems and eventually evolved through companies like eBay um, to come out to the consumer. You know, how, uh, how can we convince somebody to buy something sight unseen? That evolution uh, worked into cybersecurity issues, uh, newer technology, newer ways to integrate systems together. Um, interoperability happens to be one of my specialties uh, because in e-commerce, it's something that always comes up. Um, one of the biggest challenges that are out there. Uh, and to where when we, we come up to today, we've evolved to the point to uh, there's probably more e-commerce than traditional commerce, almost going on. We're, we're kind of hitting to that barrier where it's swapping over. It's just the trade of goods and services back and forth. It's payments flowing back and forth. It's data flowing back and forth. It's inventory, it's supply, it's wholesale, it's retail. Uh, it's now just a little bit of everything. Excellent. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly where, where I was hoping you were going to go with that, that answer, all the, the system integrations and the, the business to business and, and supply chain side of things behind that web store that, we as end users and customers see like everything behind that. Yeah. That user interface to the, uh, the customer is a surprisingly small portion of what goes on. <laughs> uh, what sort of trends are you seeing 
in the e-commerce space, especially around small businesses that are impacting cybersecurity, maybe creating some new risks that business leaders should be aware of? So the first big trend really started to push around 2010. um, And obviously COVID helped it along just because it helped uh, kind of help expedite a lot of things that were happening in the industry. Um, But it's mobile use. Uh, The fact that people buy more on their phones than they do on their computers, uh, which is very convenient for the buyer. Um, It works out for the seller in some ways. It was a big hurdle to even convince sellers that this was coming or how to adjust to it. Um, The entire way that people market and advertise products to the consumer online really changed when you had to put it into a mobile format. But as devices evolved, uh, connection availability evolved, uh, ease of payment evolved, um, this is what's grown. Uh, Of course, with this, as long as with anything, as it's growing, those threats do grow too. Um, Your biggest threats in e-commerce from the customer-facing side are uh, have to do with payments usually payments and fraud of, of orders. The last question I, I like to ask uh, every guest on the show: If there was one thing that you wanted a small business owner to know about information security in their business, what would that be? You know, I would probably give them most of the same advice that I would give any small business, um, and it really comes down to. Uh, trying to keep a production environment available. And in doing so, that means segmenting things that are not production and not introducing new things haphazardly into an environment. Um, A lot of that has to do with, you know, the users at their computers. The production floor of a fulfillment warehouse has computers much like, you know, your front office does. Um, And if your front office and that production are on the same network, using the same types of things, somebody in the front office opens the wrong email, that ransomware spreads through your production warehouse, it causes a huge issue. And that's, uh, that's some of what we see a lot of. Or somebody's installing a piece of software because they think it's making the job easier. Controlling permissions, access, trying to keep production equipment as simple and unchanged as possible, <laughs> uh, with the exception of security updates, of course. So we've got uh, some callers lined up here. Uh, Matthew, are you uh, ready to go to the phones? We'll grab our first caller here. Sure, we can go to the phones. We can do anything. Cheer up. Excellent. Perfect. We're ready to go. So let's go to the phones. Do the cybersecurity risks to your business have you confused? Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast and sign up to be a caller on a future episode. So our first caller here today on the show is Molson from Austin, Texas. Hey, Molson, how are you doing today? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So how can we help you? Um, so, uh, I run a, an e-commerce business. I heard y'all talking about that a little while ago. It's kind of interesting to listen in. Um, it's called, uh, Via Heart and we sell educational toys. Brain Flakes is our bestseller. It's a billing toy. And the problem that, uh, we often face, well, many issues, but uh, around, uh, security is we operate a bunch of different e-commerce websites. 
And we also um, sell on marketplaces like Amazon and Walmart and eBay. And we have 12 employees and um, each of these sales channels, these marketplaces, these websites, they all have, um, they're all connected to like a bank. When, when you get, when we sell something on amazon.com, amazon.com is connected to our bank. So, so we get the money from amazon.com. And because we have so many of them, it's a huge chore in order to make sure that the right bank is connected with the right sales channel. And so my question is, how do you, um, how do you have your employees manage these sales channel banking relationships without running into issues related to the, the, the wrong bank account being connected to the wrong sales channel? And I trust my employees, but uh, you know, theoretically, someone could connect their personal bank account to one of these websites and they'll, they'll capture that money and run off. And so that's kind of the, our e-commerce security question. And uh, they absolutely can. And I have seen that exactly done <laughs> before uh, as in a response to cleanup and security issues that um, I've gone in to fix. But uh, the security aspect of payments is you have to limit the people that can access it. Um, you really need to have that at in a small business. You really need that at like an owner executive tier. Um, I know my own personal businesses. I don't I don't even let accountants or CFOs um, issue checks. So I will say that when it comes down to connecting your bank accounts and verifying connections, that you're not sharing your, a, lot of, a lot of your account details with your employees. As much as you do want to trust them, you never know what could happen. Um, there is always that risk there. You definitely need to make sure, and, the, and there's really no recourse. You know, If a 25-year-old employee somehow goes in and redirects your money um, you lose $50,000. They've already spent it. You're never going to recoup that monitor, make sure that you have your alert settings. Um, one of the good things about most of these marketplace platforms, if you're going in making changes that have to do with payments, they do do verifications, email alerts, make sure that those are not going to shared mailboxes. Those are actually going to some type of your own owner administrative mailbox that you can monitor. Um, I know, in my primary company, we have a separate box that's used for things like that to where there's only two people that can access it. It's like your signers can get in. It's all confidential level information. Our assistants can't see that stuff. They can see like our regular inboxes, but not that. Just all the very sensitive things that you would, it, it's your money. It's the way that you would maintain all the sensitive things in your business is how you would maintain that. That's the most important part. I mean, you have to get paid. You have to have access to your money. You have to get your deposits. Do these systems, uh, Matthew, more like, you know, IT systems, traditional IT systems, do they have logging mechanisms the same way that other apps in businesses have? Like, can those logs be pulled out into, uh, you know, systems like a, a security event logging and monitoring system that allows you to set up certain triggers on activities and, and watch for patterns or watch for deviations of normal patterns the same way we can with other types of security logs? Could you do it in a custom integration way? You could probably pull something off to replicate it. Is there anything where you can just do a connector on it? I haven't seen one. So that sounds like a real challenge in this space that 
it's easier to do with other types of applications than that you also have to deal with. It is. There's a lot of interoperability. There's not a lot of standards uh, with how these systems run. Um, most of the standards that are out there that do exist have to do with inventory and product and quantity that moves back and forth or how orders are placed. But that's about it. Uh, not with how systems are accessed. It doesn't have, you know, there's no real concept of security in an EDI system. You know, it's based on trading FTP files back and forth. Any way they want to dress it up. That's what it is on the back end a lot of times. Also, does that, does that make sense? Do you have a, any other follow-up questions? It absolutely makes sense. And like <laughs> with every sentence, um, I like felt like a dropping sensation in my stomach. So I wrote some of that down. And uh, the only thing I have to add is that some of these marketplaces, like some marketplaces where we're doing like, I, like one comes to mind where we did something like three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars worth of sales. There isn't, there isn't even the option to have multiple users with like tiers of access. So in other words, like all these orders need, like I can't spend all my time like checking the orders and stuff like that, and making sure things get shipped. Someone else has to do that in order for our business to run. But it turns out that you can't tier the permissions to have a different person have access to the payments. So it's just like kind of like a gaping hole. But um, but something that Matthew said that was real smart is rather than using like a single person's um, email address for the login with that all shared, what we could do is we could at least use like a shared email address that would go out to a bunch of different people. So if the bank account does get changed, like I and others would get the notification instead of just that person. Yeah. Like a distribution group where, where you know, a multiple mailboxes get notified that way someone can't go clean up their tracks. Um, make sure that you don't have a single IT person that has access to all the emails too. You know, you never know what level your attack vectors coming from or what type of access they end up getting. Right. Uh, it's gotta be one of your responsibilities to, um, to get it and count it and make sure it's coming through. Uh, like you said, there are a lot of marketplaces out there do not have, uh, that type of tiered access that you need in some of those, they do have enough API access to get regular jobs done in my fulfillment warehouse. There is one piece of software that is used. It is something that we made that integrates and brings everything in its core. A couple of my clients use the same software at their warehouses too. We, we kind of built it as a SaaS system um, that does a lot of integrations and pull things in. So that way they can do customer service and they can do things without having to go log into the marketplaces to where the marketplace account itself is froze out and controlled and considered administrative access. And then we have automated systems that do reporting and checking that can then send that same type of information that you would need out to a dashboard or to an email um, for operations teams periodically to where they can see, hey, how many orders are left? What's the configuration of that? Did we get everything shipped that we needed to today? What's the emergency stuff that needs to be addressed? There's an hour left in our shipping day, you know, to where we can time it and, and customize it. But it does take a lot of interoperability and customization for each individual client on that. And that's usually based on their actual warehouse physical operations and the times that things happen. It sounds to me kind of like some of the takeaways uh, from this really are that the, these systems don't make these things easy. And so you've got to make sure that you're at least using the features and enabling the features that do exist that they give you and then find other kind of creative ways with email groups and distribution lists and other types of you know more ad hoc alerting 
to be able to detect these things or that that trust but verify, you know, checking reports and, and dashboards and just any way you can to be able to detect anomalies uh, given some of the, the deficiencies in the the way these systems work and handle permissions and, and you know, separation of roles and, and duties and role-based access and those types of things and logging and all the things we're used to in IT security for being able to actually lock something down and secure it. So Molson, I appreciate you coming on the show and, and joining us here. It's been a, a great discussion and, and good questions. I've, you know, well, I'm, I'm learning a lot just, just by uh, listening to Matthew throwing down the knowledge here. Yeah. I mean, Matthew knows his stuff. I was listening a little bit uh, before the show. I, I have, we also have our own fulfillment warehouse and, as he said, there's so much more to e-commerce than just like kind of like what you see on the website. It's there's a whole physical world behind it that goes on that, that's super difficult. And uh, thank you for having me on and go check out Brainflakes, which are which is what is built behind me. It's an awesome educational story. Thanks, guys. And thanks for joining us. This was this was good, wonderful question, and uh, we'll we'll see you around the the internet. Our next caller today here on the show is Howard from Philadelphia. Hey, Howard, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Should I call you Accidental or Mr. CISO? Uh, AC is good. My, my friends all call me AC. So, uh, tell us uh, a little bit about the, the questions you have. How can we help you? So uh, I am, uh, I'm actually an attorney, a cybersecurity attorney for a, a very large um, national uh, property and casualty insurance company, um, but I've worked in my career uh, for a number of different financials and, and retailers. And one of the issues that's come up uh, over and over again in different ways uh, to me, you know, come up to me professionally as an attorney and, and also just having just a general interest in cybersecurity has been customer identity and access management. So not how do you manage access for your, your employees and your contractors, but um, you know, how do you manage your customers? Um, and so, you know, my first question, you know, really is about, you know, I think when everybody thinks about customer identity and access management, the first thing they think about is multi-factor authentication, right? You know, sending it, sending out a text message, you know, for your, you know, when someone logs in, um, which is, you know, folks generally know how to use it. But, you know, my question is really, you know, for a retailer and they come in all different sizes. And I know this is a small business focused show. You know, how do you really balance that, you know, the, the ease of use um, of, you know, the getting people in and getting people to buy stuff versus, you know, the security and anti-fraud, you know, efforts of, of multi-factor? Um, so this is, I mean, you touched on, on some really good points in this uh, and kind of have some answers to your question too. Um, a lot of this is um, that you, you even mentioned is it has to do with scale. It has to do with scale. It has to do with dollars um, size. Like if you are and your resources, um, everything in small business and large business is a balance of, of what you have available and what issues you can address. There will always be issues. Um, I can say that on your customer facing side, um, you should probably be outsourcing to a third-party authentication system. Um, I like to use Microsoft in a lot of my applications for it, um, but you can support, you know, like the Gmail and other things. When you say single sign-on, what what kind of single sign-on are you talking about? Like where where are they coming from that they're you're you're accepting that authentication? 
So at this point, I'm saying we're going to use their Microsoft, their Gmail, their Facebook. Uh, we're going to use those providers to actually handle the authentication piece, to authenticate into our systems. And we're just going to match them up in our system with essentially a customer ID and profile. Um, that's not going to have any kind of direct login tied to it. You, When you're using those, the, the single sign-on, you really, you're kind of getting their whole anti-fraud engine, their whole risk engine that they're running when they want to hit MFA, when they don't, when they want to make you re-log in. So I mean, it, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, which is sometimes good, and, which is sometimes good, but it's also inherent with some flaws too. But I always suggest finding something that's that's out there that's hard and it's true uh, and convenient. And what you come down to is that ease of use piece too um, of you need your customers to buy something, right? If you make it too challenging, they go away. So over the years, uh, things like checkout has evolved. Um, and one of the things we came down to probably around the 2007 era was single page checkout. Because as much information as you want and need or want to collect or that's important or choices to put somebody through during a checkout process, if you don't get them through it quickly, your abandon rate, like every couple seconds, is escalating. If it's hard to buy something, people will stop buying it. You know, obviously, a lot of effort goes into usability from a purchasing standpoint of, you know, and a lot of effort goes into getting people to buy. Uh, but to the side of account takeovers, fraud, from the security side of things, there are uh, user experience experts and consultants that specialize in application security. And it might be worth, uh, you know, small businesses bringing in maybe on a consulting basis, fractional basis, because it's probably not somebody you need full time but somebody to help with that side of it because it's they're going to be looking at it a little bit differently than the folks who are really focused on streamlining the sales process experience. Uh, but having somebody look at, at the UX specifically around sort of other pieces of how the app functions and, and how your account uh, management stuff is and profile management stuff and security stuff is all there. Uh, so that might be another, another piece that small businesses look at, at outsourcing there uh, to a, a UX expert to help with just those specific items as well. Uh, and a lot of it come really factors into uh, who your customer is too. Like, is your customer a retail buyer? Um, is your customer a longtime buyer? Is your customer a frequent buyer? Like, is, does your customer come every week and use it like they're buying groceries? Uh, is your customer a business that comes and spends, you know, 200,000 a month or more with you? Um, that, that dollar value has a lot to do with it too. You can require more things because there's more risk when the dollars get bigger. If you're one-off selling ten to hundred dollar items um, to a mobile customer, and they may never come back, or maybe even they do come back, you need to make it easy. Get them in, get them out, get them bought. It's like guest checkout's the best way. Then, like they don't even need to register. It's interesting because I've seen it. I've worked for some of the financials I've worked for have that that sort of quality of like you don't log into them that often. They're not banks, you know. You're not you're not checking it that often. It's you know set and forget it, and that can be a challenge. People forget their password. People don't remember which phone number they put in or whatever. So I, my second question is sort of the other side of that authentication coin, customer authentication coin, which is fraud. You know, when as a small small business retailer, like 
when do you start to think about that? When do you, you know, I mean, because it just like, you know, I think I listened to the earlier, uh, part of the earlier discussion, you know, around, you know, one of the things you think about is outsourcing your sock. Well, if you're not going to have a sock, if you're not big enough to like support a sock, you're probably not going to be big enough to be supporting a team of fraud investigators either. So, you know, what, what are your thoughts, what's your thoughts on fraud and, and, and how you manage that? So, yeah, um, and it comes down to, again, dollars and who your customer is, right? So if you're dealing with the regular consumer customer, you're taking payments. Um, the I always push people to say, use PayPal for your payments only on your own website. Like, that's it. Um, they do, cause PayPal does have, through their flow, has the option for the customer at that point to choose to just go ahead and use a credit card uh, as a guest account. Okay. So they can put in and handle that. Um, this simplifies a lot of things. Not only it reduces your exposure, it reduces some of your needs, which we actually, I think we talk about that a little bit later. Anyway. Um, but so it's going to reduce some of your liabilities and some things that you need to get involved with that come with collecting payments, right? It's also going to give you some protections like PayPal offers a level of protection at the seller and the buyer, truthfully, as long as everybody participates and does things the way that you should. Um, as long as you do all of the right things, PayPal is going to protect your money. If you process credit cards through your own and you let's say you just go get a regular payment gateway or you do something with your bank to where you're taking in the credit cards and then it's running through something like authorized.net or whatever gateway that you want to use that's out there or your bank has their own gateway and it dumps into your bank account you're now i mean even though you use the gateway and some people in the middle you're essentially the payment processor you have new liabilities you have the payment data you have things that you may have collected that you shouldn't have that you saved, even though you're not supposed to, um, you're responsible for all that data and that liability, right? You also are not protected um, against, you know, uh, there being a fraud on the back end, uh, a fraud that's good enough to get past your systems and the bank systems. There are a lot, and this is why I always have told people from the beginning of time, you shop with a credit card, you don't use your debit card for anything. Like your debit cards are taking out cash and otherwise don't even put it in your wallet because it's too tempting, right? Uh, I don't care what somebody's going to tell you. You're going to save on fees or anything. You use a credit card. And if, if you're very, if you're so scared about going into credit card debt, then pay it off every day or pay it off every week, whatever you need to do. A credit card has federal laws that say that if you are a credit card holder and you, you see something on your credit card bill, that you did not purchase or that you did not receive, you can notify the credit card company and they must give you your money back. That is a legal obligation. If somebody gets the money from your debit card, your bank account, that's just up to bank policy. They have no legal requirement to help you. They can just tell you, sorry, Charlie, you lost your money. You should have protected it. Now, most banks, um, for convenience, and as a service aspect have evolved over the last few years to start offering some things where they help you if there was some type of fraud. They're not obligated to them, not one bit. Credit card companies legally have to, like there's a process. If you call and dispute it, they have to take it off immediately. They have a dispute process. It's very rarely ever reversed onto the customer. Unless you're absolutely calling up and lying <laughs> and somebody can prove that you're lying, 
that's not going to be reversed to you. But if someone took your credit card, purchased something, shipped it to your house, intercepted it at your mailbox, and ran off, the seller is going to pay for that, not the buyer. Okay? If you do that through PayPal, then they're going to fight on the back end. You run through their process. The worst case, the end of the day, PayPal is actually going to pay for that. Okay? They're going to pay the seller and the buyer. <laughs> is what that might come down to. In most cases, though, it'll be, you know, as long as you did the right thing, then you're good, seller's protected, buyer's going to still have to pay. As long as you're following the rules, obviously. Based on their policies of you tracked it, you required a signature, you did this, that, or that, you used the right type of shipping service, you did everything within the days, you communicated right. You did all the things that you're supposed to do as a seller, which are really basic things at this point, right? If you're not doing that, then you're just not a good seller online. Somehow you're 10 plus years behind, you need to evolve. Um, because this is the basic level of service they're really requiring, right? You do those basic things, you follow through, PayPal's got your back. Now, if on the back end, it was somebody fraudulently using a account or anything else, well, that's our problem. That's not yours. As long as you show you did the right thing. So it sounds like small businesses then, uh, you know, if they are careful about what types of payments and payment processes they are using, the, the need for an internal fraud team really is is reduced because of these legal protections around credit cards. Is that, am I understanding that? It's highly reduced. Um, and really at that point, then you're, you just need to worry about transactions that go over certain dollar amounts. So basically, you're saying for small for small businesses, you know, unless you think you can save money by building up your own fraud team, just use PayPal. I have rarely seen a point where it's advantageous to do it in house. Like even knocking a point, like a percentage point, off of your payment flow, even at extremely high volume, right? So some of my e-commerce customers that do you know, retail, like hit levels. They're like, okay, they did a hundred million dollars through marketplaces over the year. When we factor all the liabilities and everything else that starts to come into play, uh, I always suggest third party. And I always pretty much suggest PayPal because they really are the best one with the best features, especially for disputes. That's, uh, that's really interesting. I didn't, yeah, I'll learn something new. Thanks, Howard. I appreciate you coming on the show and, I don't have anything to add because I'm just sitting here soaking this up. And, you know, this episode, I'm I'm learning more than I'm helping. It, it seems uh, here is, as I said, as Matt's dropping the knowledge. So it's it's great having, you know, having having real genuine questions on the show from folks who are working in small orgs and trying to solve these problems, because then the folks listening, you know, it's it's relevant to them and they're they're facing similar problems uh, as well. You know, I'm sure so. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity, AC. Matthew, thank you as well. Hey, thank you. Have a great rest of your day and a great weekend. For our next caller here on the show, we have uh, Howard, another Howard, not the same Howard that we were just speaking to. Uh, and this Howard is from North Carolina. Hello, Howard. Welcome to the Mindful Business Security Show. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. Thank you for having me on today. Yeah, how can we help you? Uh, yeah, so I work for a medium-sized company that offers B2B solutions for our clients. And um, just kind of wondering, um, in regards to e-commerce, what would be the legal requirements if we made a service available to purchase online 
through our website, but we're using a third-party payment processor. All right. So I guess, first of all, I should probably say that uh, I don't have a law degree, so I can't charge you for legal advice, but I'll give you a bunch of free stuff <laughs> that you can go talk to your lawyer about. Sounds great. So this uh, this actually can get pretty tricky, and this can do some things that really affect the insurance profile at your company. Um I'm not sure if anybody else noticed, but uh, cyber security insurance has um, has changed dramatically in the last few years. Uh, I remember my first application for cybersecurity, and probably up until about 2017, every time I had to fill out the application for renewal each year, it was about one page. Uh, that same application is about 15 now. Uh, it has to do with looking for all kinds of little things um, to figure out, hey, what are we doing with PII? And and all kinds of information. So what you, this is going to come down to is the exact implementation of how that integration with that third-party provider works, okay? So it really depends on the provider and how they do it. <clears throat> what it comes down to is if your systems at any point record um, or even just take the input to pass along, even if they don't store it, uh, if, but if somewhere on your systems actually see that payment information, uh, then it becomes your responsibility. If you push them off to the third party, say like with a PayPal integration, and they go to PayPal's website and they enter all of the information in, as long as you're not using uh, PayPal, actually, I'm sorry, let me correct that, because PayPal does have a separate service called Website Payments Pro, which essentially allows you to use PayPal in the back end to run credit cards without anyone knowing that you're using PayPal. So with the exception of that service, if you're say pushing them to a third party where they actually go to their website, something like pushing them to PayPal through the front end GUI, um, when they went, land on their application, if they are putting their information in on PayPal's actual hosted servers and site, and yours isn't involved, and they're running through the entire payment process with them, and then PayPal just communicates back to you, hey, we got it, the money's in your account, and you can go ahead and prove the order. In those scenarios, which most e-commerce and e-commerce marketplace scenarios will follow these days, um, you won't have any responsibilities at all because all you, all you actually have at that point is, um, is PII of what the people ordered, what their names are, what their addresses are, and then that comes down to you know, like your state's regulations and your privacy policy for how you protect that. Um, obviously, we say, you know, recommend always protect that information as if it's valuable uh, when it comes down to a customer, whether your state says so or not. The real details of compliance um, is going to be, you know, what type of industry you're in, what compliance can apply. Uh, if you're actually getting that payment information, which in most cases you shouldn't. You shouldn't have information about the payment instrument. But if you do, then it's your problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. I generally recommend small businesses, like, you know, very small orgs that are just getting started in e-commerce, especially like the mom and pop shops, use these integrations that Matthew's talking about where you redirect to them. They handle facilitating the payment, like PayPal or somebody here. And then they rec they send the customer back with some information you know, back to your system that says, yes, this, this was completed just so that you don't have to get into all of the, the compliance side of this. Cause building a, a compliance program around the, the payment, uh, payment card, uh, stuff, the PCI 
compliance requirements is not necessarily an easy task. And there's going to be some effort in there uh, just within your, your processes, within your technology. And so you're going to have cost associated with, with that and getting it set up and, and implemented to where you'd be able to protect that information uh, sufficiently. Yeah. And it's not even really just protecting it. It's documenting that you're protecting it, which is a lot worse than actually protecting it. Yeah. I knew that that somewhere along those lines, depending on how it was received or transmitted, that it could um, invoke some compliance stuff. But this is, in fact, my first rodeo, so I didn't know. Hopefully that's helpful. Did you have any uh, follow-up questions? Did that spark anything else for you? I think um, the follow-up question that I had was if we were to go into something like an Azure marketplace, that would probably completely absolve us of any PCI risk. So I have not had experience with Azure Marketplace yet, um, but I understand what you're talking about. And I believe their billing would run through Microsoft systems, wouldn't it? I, I would think so. I, 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 it has to. Well, here's one of the key words, marketplace. That means there's a venue in the middle that wants to collect a piece of payment. So they really want to touch the payments. Uh, they don't want you paying them on the back end. So, like, if you're dealing with uh, eBay and the iOS store and, uh, you know, Google Play or Amazon or Walmart, uh, you'll notice that they get paid first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be another scenario that we're considering. So, it's good to know that we would uh, stay away from PCI, especially in one of those scenarios. Yeah. So most marketplaces used to allow you to kind of bypass them for payments, but they've really gotten away from that. They want to keep the checkout. They want to be responsible too. They don't want you collecting their customers' payment information and then having something happen because that reflects on you. And even just being a developer with um, eBay and Amazon, like I have to go through the steps for a lot of those compliance things, even though I never see their payments. And I think one of the benefits too, the, the marketplace, aside from the payment stuff, even though they they take a cut of this as discoverability, you know they're they're going to be driving traffic to their marketplace from an advertising standpoint and getting eyeballs and and making this available to folks. Uh, and whether you're in an Azure marketplace selling software uh, or if you're selling physical merchandise drop shipped through um, you know one of these companies that does you know t-shirts or whatever, but if you're in one of these uh, companies that has a marketplace like that, like you're going to get the benefit uh, of that discoverability of, of them driving traffic to it and their algorithms showing folks other products that they might like within it. So there's other benefits there with those marketplaces in addition to just the uh, payment processing side of this. Well, thank you for being on the show, uh, Howard. I've, I appreciate you calling in and asking questions. And the show doesn't work without callers to ask questions. So that's uh, kind of a critical piece of a call-in radio show. So, Yeah, thank you for having me. So we had three really uh, good callers again this week. Uh, we've been blessed with wonderful callers and great questions and good conversation. Uh, Matthew, what are your final thoughts on this? We covered a lot of different topical areas with these customers. Anything you want to leave our listeners with here as we're wrapping up the show? Well, I mean, this is a security-focused show, right? So we should probably point out like what are these best practices out there if you're in e-commerce um and uh you know as you can see the questions 
that the call-ins, they were all related to payments. That's your biggest security spot, right? You have to understand the payment ecosystem, um, how customers are able to take advantage of it in some ways uh, to protect yourself and know that, you know, there are some losses, some acceptable, some unacceptable in that process. Uh, but understanding the protection methods that are available for you from wherever you are processing your payments um, is one of the keys and what the marketplaces that you're using. Uh, they want you to be safe when you sell to. Um, obviously, they're going to be lean towards the side of the buyer a little bit more than the seller in most cases, um, but they do still have protections for the sellers. Uh, you just have to learn, you know, what it, what's their guidance on that. Um, when we get past that, what are we talking about? We're talking about authentication, right? You don't want to get your passwords gamed. Um, try to work with each marketplace to figure out what factors of authentication they support and implement as many as possible. Um, I know a, one of the biggest challenges with these marketplaces is that they don't support multi-user login very well. Um, they don't support a lot of enhanced features. Uh, to be able to control and monitor logins. Um, there are some workarounds for that. A lot of it, shared email addresses, uh, essentially distribution lists, uh, shared email boxes, uh, making sure that notifications are turned on in accounts, trying to find different creative ways to make uh, multi-factor authentication work across a team of people, <laughs> uh, which we get into sometimes as well. Um, you know, we have a few uh, we have a few systems that can take an SMS and actually share uh, with with a couple team members on our team um, for when we need to log in and do things like that. Um, past that, then what we're looking at is your environment, right? Uh, the same thing you would do in any network is you need to have uptime. Uh, the problem with e-commerce is sometimes things are more immediate. There are a lot of things that happen every day that have a cutoff time that have to happen, especially when it has to deal with fulfillment. So if you're in the fulfillment side of the business, um, you have to keep your fulfillment environment separate and compartmentalized from every other piece of the network. It really needs to be running as its own separate little network uh, with very little new things introduced uh, unless they're tested very well um, and you have a good response team. Uh, but you definitely don't want to that's not the place where you should have somebody that's like, I don't know, downloading a program to help rename JPEG files because it's going to be easier and then find out that this particular free software program, like every free software has something hidden in it. That's going to take advantage of your network. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the common sense things that we run into in business every day, stop installing things, stop giving people privileges, you know, um, we want to make sure that the users can work and work efficiently, but we also need to keep a certain amount of uh, critical uptime when it comes to e-commerce fulfillment, uh, especially. And then just, you know, keep your front office, back office, whatever else you have separate from production warehouses. Uh, that way, if they bust up the network a little bit, you can kind of keep it. Really great points. I mean, my kind of takeaway... Uh, from all of this is like, you know, security gets seen a lot as a, a technical a problem, but it, so much of what we discussed are, are more around business decisions, who you're going to partner with, you know, what things you're going to outsource to what versus what things you can and should be doing internally. And they're not necessarily, uh, you know, all technical things. Uh, most of 
you know, what we, we talked about on the show just was, uh, you know, at that, that business decision level and strategy level. Um, and I think that's just one of the, the things that, uh, you know, I'd want small businesses folks to be as, as mindful about making decisions that, that help, uh, help so you don't even have to get into the technical side of a lot of the security, just because you've made good decisions about partnering and outsourcing and thing, things at the, the business level. Yeah, good policies and procedures, working with people that you can trust, um, making sure that you're not uh, just offloading. I mean, one of the things about being a business owner is you don't want to waste your time on a lot of tedious tasks. Um, so you try to offload and delegate as much as you can. There are certain things where you got to be careful not to over-delegate. And a lot mm -hmm. of those fall into things like security and things like your money. Uh, those are some of the biggest issues I've seen uh, on my own, helping small businesses and recovering small businesses that have had a crisis or some type of disaster that, that need to be fixed. Man, this has been been really great. Uh, where can folks find you online, Matthew, if they're looking for more information to, to catch up with you? Uh, so like when people want to work with me or have questions, I, uh, you know, I usually actually tell them just contact me through Twitter. So that way, after the initial conversation, I can figure out kind of where I need to direct you, uh, as far as my compartmentalization of life, because I have to keep certain entity things I do separate as well. Uh, so on Twitter, it's Matthew with one T because the second T is just inefficient and a waste of resources. So it's M-A-T-H-E-W and then underscore D-E-V as in David Edward Victor, Matthew underscore Dev. Uh, thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate you joining me on this episode of the Mindful Business Security Show. I appreciate your willingness to share all of your vast expertise with our callers today. Uh, and as always, I want to extend a huge thank you to our listeners. Uh, you taking the time to listen to this show every month means a lot to me. So I hope that you have found it to be very valuable for you. Uh, as always, I am Accidental CISO. And until next time, stay mindful. Don't miss our next episode. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Visit Fosivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast for show information and links to our social media pages. This has been the Mindful Business Security Show brought to you by Fosivity. Tune in next time when we'll hear accidental CISO say, Is an image of somebody... I imagine, and here I'm asking questions now, is is an image of a person like this still considered, you know, personally identifiable information at that point? I imagine it would be.